This is episode 183 of the Small Year Pride podcast, and today we have two guests. We have George Barnes, who has clinical experience in a variety of settings, including acute care, acute rehab, skilled nursing, and critical illness recovery. This variety has developed his specialization in dysphagia management with a focus on diagnostics or instrumental swallow evaluations. His concentration is on geriatric patients with complex medical status. He is co-founder of Feasible Swallow Solutions, a mobile speech pathology company dedicated to improving access to high-quality dysphagia services for patients in the skilled nursing setting. George has a track record of supporting the field of speech pathology by paying his knowledge forward to other professionals via graduate-level education, clinical fellowships, and student supervision, the Student to Empowered Professionals Step Mentorship Program, Medical SLP Collective Mentorship Service, ASHA Special Interest Groups, Peer Review for ASHA Course Material, SIG 13 Dysphagia Editorial Committee, and participation in various interdisciplinary teams and committees in the hospital setting. He is a multiple ACE Award recipient for his dedication to continuing education. George actively conducts and supports new research aimed to improve efficiency and accuracy in dysphagia diagnostics, management, and care. And George is joined by his colleague, Doreen Benson, who is an SLP with over 25 years of experience. She is currently employed by Shenandoah Memorial Hospital in Woodstock, Virginia, where she is involved in evaluation, treatment, and program planning for adults with dysphagia. Hello, it's me again. Got a few questions for you. Are you feeling the burden of imposter syndrome at work? Are you afraid that faking it until you make it really is not the right answer? Don't know how to make your case for the things you need? You can't get the administrator to agree to an instrumental? Unsure of yourself when talking to the nurse practitioner or medical director in the building? Are you looking to have positive outcomes with treatments while giving your patients the best in evidence-based practice? Are you looking for a promotion or a raise or just a positive change from where you are now in your career? Well, we have something that can help you find the solutions to these problems. Medical SLP Collective is what you need in your professional life to take your career to the next level. If you have a professional question, any professional question, we have a resource or a mentor that can help you. We also have a library of webinars registered for ASHA CEUs just for you. And if we don't have it, we will make it. We use our proprietary review process to make sure that it is based on evidence-based practice. We are a real community and we are so much better together. I am Teresa Richard and my team cannot wait to welcome you into the MedSLP Collective. Enrollment is open from May 17th to May 27th and then we will be closing enrollment down for a few months. So I hope you join us now. to the Swallow Your Pride podcast. I'm your host, Teresa Richard. I'm a board-certified specialist in swallowing and swallowing disorders, a mobile fees business owner, and founder of the MedSLP Collective. This podcast is all about delivering the latest evidence-based practice to medical SLPs everywhere. Whether you're a new clinician seeking tangible tools for treatment or a seasoned vet stuck in a rut, my goal is to help ditch the old school ways of the past that no longer serve you or your patients, to reinvigorate your passion for our field, to broaden your knowledge about our scope of practice, and to inspire you to practice at the top of your license. So if you're listening, I encourage you to swallow your pride, be open and willing to learn, because let's face it, your patients deserve that kind of care. With that, let's dive right in. 
Just a quick disclaimer that all statements and opinions expressed in this episode do not reflect on the organizations associated with the speakers and are their own opinions solely. Hello, good morning, George and Doreen. Good morning. Good morning. All right. I'm so excited to have the both of you on. Um, I know that I've, George, I've, I've known you, quote unquote, in the online virtual world for quite some mm-hmm. time. This is my first time meeting you, Doreen, but thank you for joining me. Um, and if you guys want, just want to say a little bit about who you are. Yes, uh, we, Doreen, I will, I just want to say how giddy excited I am to be, to be talking on Swallow Your Pride right now. I'm a longtime listener. I've been, I've been a dedicated fan since you first started, Teresa. So I just wanted to let you know that. Awesome. Thank you, George. And we're really excited to be talking today. Doreen, why don't, do you want to introduce yourself and just say a little bit about sure. you first? My name is Doreen Benson, and I have been a speech pathologist. Uh, I finished my um, Seattle, probably why I don't know how to operate Zoom. Um, but I, my passion has always been being able to apply the evidence to a good understanding of, of why we do what we do. So that's why this project has been so exciting for me. And I am also super excited to have an opportunity to share it and, and get some feedback with a bunch of listeners because I know you have so many. So this is really, really a great opportunity. Thank you. So yeah, I am I'm a speech pathologist. I've been practicing for, for a few years now. I work in a few different acute care settings, and I currently am uh, running a mobile fees company called Feasible Swallow Solutions in the New York and New Jersey area. And um, similar to Doreen, we kind of saw a, a huge need with introducing sort of a tool to help us calculate the risk of pneumonia. Because as we're going through our day uh, treating patients, we're noticing that there really is no tangible way to sort of nail down this really, really important question. How likely is my patient to develop pneumonia? And um, um, so we're basically trying to introduce um, a calculator. Uh, This calculator would... Um, calculate the risk of a specific patient to develop pneumonia. We're, you know, we're in the very beginning stages of this uh, product, but um, we're hoping that the final product is basically going to be a formula that any speech pathologist can use. They can basically just kind of plug in specific risk factors that a patient might present with. And what they would get out of that calculator, what, what they would get out on the other side of the formula would be a specific number that would represent the likelihood that their patient would get pneumonia. Interesting. And we're hoping, you know, we're hoping this tool will, will sort of help us focus less on the dysphagia and the aspiration, uh, which we are all we've all become fantastic at focusing on, but we do think we've, we've gotten a little bit of tunnel vision when it comes to that and um, maybe kind of expanding the lens so that we can expand out and, and see the patient as a whole um, and understanding the patient as a whole in terms of risks and benefits to, to the different types of management strategies that we can offer to a patient. So, so yeah. So, you know, instead of, instead of just, kind of basically treating the swallow as it, it, like we're in a vacuum. We, you know, we think that this tool 
would basically help us see that swallow within the framework of pneumonia risk. So, you know, you, you know that the aspiration will, it, aspiration isn't in, in, in it of itself a huge risk to the patient. It's really uh, depends on the patient itself and kind of how they respond to that aspiration. So, you know, if a patient is silently aspirating, that's one thing. But if they are at risk of getting pneumonia from that aspiration, it's, it's a completely different story. And so we're hoping that our tool would basically help us put that risk into perspective by, by taking all of these individual risk factors, plugging them into a formula, and essentially getting a number that we can use um, to either, you know, for ourselves uh, to manage the patient properly and also to present to the patient and say, hey, this is your specific risk of getting pneumonia. And, um, you know, maybe these are some things that we can do to reduce that number. Yeah, yeah. Have you guys talked to any like researchers or anybody about getting this? I guess what's the word? Started. Yeah. <laughs> to, to yeah. Actually, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So we've done a lot of research ourselves. This is something that we've been kind of working on for uh, almost three years now. So we've done a lot of the upfront research. We're still in the pilot phase of actually doing a, a full on a full-on research approach, and we're kind of figuring out with different researchers in the field how the most effective way to do that, since neither of us are um, research-based clinicians. But we do feel like we have, as a field, we have enough research to, to basically put this tool into practice. It doesn't just have to be the uh, theoretical at this point. And before, basically, before we jump into any more specific details on the tool itself, what I'd like to do is just introduce some, some problems that we have with our current approach and kind of explain why it's so important that we have this tool. Excellent. I love it. Okay. So right now, swallowing-related aspiration is our number one consideration in determining if a patient's going to get pneumonia. But in reality it's only one small part of a very big picture. It's important, but you know, focusing on one important part of something and missing the whole picture is like putting a bowl of sugar in front of somebody and calling it a cake. It's just, it's not the same thing. And this isn't just us. You know, many medical professionals look at a patient who is aspirating or even considered to be at a risk for aspiration and say they show some leukocytosis, you know, increased white blood cell count, um, or any other evidence of infection, and the diagnosis automatically becomes aspiration pneumonia. The medical community has sort of been conditioned to associate aspiration with pneumonia, even when aspiration in itself is only suspected. So there, there are two assumptions being made here. One you know, the patient is definitely aspirating. And two, that this aspiration is the primary cause of the pneumonia. So what we can do is talk, talk a little bit about how we got to this place. And there are several considerations in trying to trace back where all this started. You know, aspiration pneumonia is reimbursed at a higher rate than other pneumonias. Not suggesting any kind of foul play here, but it is a fact that does need to be considered in this whole thing. In general, we also, we fall victim to sort of an overinterpretation of limited evidentiary support. In other words, 
we think the simplest answer is always the right answer without really looking at all the evidence. You know, with so many moving parts involved in the complexity of medical care, we often oversimplify the diagnosis to make care more efficient, but it doesn't always become more effective. And then on the other hand, there's also the inherent difficulty in making a differential diagnosis to begin with, because number one, diagnosing pneumonia is really tricky. Lab work can be interpreted in different ways. Chest x-rays are inherently difficult to read. And number two, there are also many different types of pneumonias. For example, there's bacterial pneumonia, you know, and, and then the specific type of bacteria that cause that pneumonia. There's viral pneumonia and the specific type of virus. And then there are basically a string of pneumonias that tell you where you were when you got it, like community-acquired pneumonia, hospital-acquired pneumonia, nursing home-acquired pneumonia, ventilator-associated pneumonia, which basically just says you were on the vent when it happened. And of course, then there's aspiration pneumonia. But all of these together, you know, it sounds more complicated than it is. They really all share the same pathogenesis. That is, the patient breathes in harmful pathogens and it develops an infection in their lungs. But because they all share the same etiology, it becomes very difficult to differentiate the infection unless specific diagnostic, diagnostic tests are run, such as a sputum sample, for example, which you know, rarely they are. And so, so management of the pneumonia then becomes very tricky because we don't always know the primary cause. And among uh, all of these different types of pneumonias, aspiration pneumonia is unique. It tells us less about the where and less about the what and more about the how, which is great. You know, it, it tells us more information, which would theoretically help us manage the patient better. But the problem is it's often still based on those same two assumptions that the patient is aspirating and that this aspiration is leading to pneumonia. So, Number one, how do we know that the patient is aspirating or has aspirated? Sometimes the literature we found refers to quote unquote witnessed aspiration at the bedside. Now, either they found those x-ray vision goggles that we've all been waiting for, and I'm sure Teresa, you have been too, or they're basically just referring to a coughing or vomiting episode that occurred. But even then, we can't know for sure that there was aspiration. And Teresa, you know better than anybody that without an instrumental study, we're simply, we're playing a guessing game basically. So other times a clinical diagnosis is made if there are symptoms of pneumonia and there is say something or anything in the patient's remote or recent history that suggests dysphagia. For example, a stroke, dementia, Parkinson's, COPD, et cetera. If so, then the patient must have aspiration pneumonia, right? There's, but there's, you know, there's typically no objective clinical criteria that would be required for this diagnosis. So what this ends up leading to is a whole bunch of people being misdiagnosed with aspiration pneumonia, unfortunately. It's a diagnosis that even in itself leads to more assumptions about the patient's aspiration risk and sort of the these draconian measures that we've used to manage it. And, you know, the, the medical community 
seems to have adopted this idea that aspiration equals pneumonia and, and we must do whatever it is in our power to stop it, no matter what the side effects are. But Doreen actually has a good example of when she first started practicing how it was a little bit different than it is today. Right, Doreen? <laughs> when I first started practicing, I, you know, it was, I was making a case for thickened liquids. I had to kind of prove why I felt like it would be efficacious. Now I feel like I'm doing the opposite. I'm having to argue not to put someone on thickened liquids. Um, so I, I think the shift was gradual. And I think that we have been so uh, successful in making a case for preventing aspiration that now we're dealing with the consequences. Um, I don't think it's just us, you know, it's, it's all those things that George was talking about as well. Um, but yeah, we're really stuck in this rut of aspiration equals pneumonia. I, I wholeheartedly agree. And I, I love 100% of what you said, George, because I think I, I just was having a conversation last week with a few people about I, how did we just get so hyper-focused and, you know, we can, blame it on our training, we can blame it on whatever the heck we want. But the reality is, it's our responsibility now to, to understand really more of body systems and, you know, how the body works as a whole. And it's not just this, you know, I mean, a monkey could do our job if we looked at a person and said, Oh, patient aspirating patient has pneumonia. Okay, like, there's way more pieces to the puzzle that for some reason, you know, we just weren't educated on, or we just haven't taken the time to really get to know or understand. So thank you. I think you, you delineated that beautifully, George. Well, thank you. And yeah, that's, that's sort of the starting point that we're working off of here. And we're hoping that this tool will, will move us in that direction. And, and, you know, what Doreen was saying about how, how different things were uh, back when she started practicing, it tells us a couple of things. It tells us that you know, we're as a medical field, we can kind of sort of be a little bit fickle when it comes to following certain trends. Um, you know, we're not immune from, from following trends, just like no industry is. And it does tell us that things can change if we want them to badly enough. And if we all sort of get on the same page as a field, but I don't know if we're quite there yet, but we're hoping that this tool will sort of you know, we want it to be universally um, accessible to everybody so that we can all kind of have this, this benefit. Because the way that we're managing dysphagia right now by just focusing on the dysphagia isn't quite working as well as we'd like for, uh, for the patient. And for example, so Teresa, quick question for you. What would you say, um, you know, this, what would you say the speech, the speech, the speech pathologist's most fo uh, common form of dysphagia management is? What do we do more than any other thing to manage somebody's dysphagia for better or for worse? Change their diet and thicken their liquids. Exactly. Exactly. And we, and we now know the consequences of this practice pattern can be really significant, you, you know, in terms of uh, going to just give you some, some research on that in terms of patient preferences and quality of life, adherence to modified diets is found to be at 51.3%. Um, and 75% and of patients have been found not to like thickened liquids. These, these numbers shouldn't surprise us, but we understand them, yet we still you know, over-recommend over them for our patients. And in terms of nutritional and overall health consequences, modified texture diets and liquids have a strong correlation with malnutrition and dehydration. 
And this is either due to dislike or uh, reduced intake due to early satiety. And um, this can also be related to the increased volume of food and liquid that are in each bite that we take. And also this increased volume is also related to the, there's less nutrient density in each bite that we take. Plus it changes the muscle mass related to um, possible disuse atrophy. You know, we're not using the same muscles and coordination that we are with a regular thin liquid diet. Uh, and there's also the impaired ability to absorb medicine into the bloodstream. Um, and this is due to changes <clears throat> that are caused by these thickening agents. And I know Amanda Weisberg had an, had an excellent talk on, on your show just a couple of weeks ago on this. So, you know, these are things that we are aware of. Um, and it's, it's gotten to the point that it's not just the patients who are at risk here. Our professional reputation is also at risk. Our roles as, as SLPs have been built on top of this foundation that aspiration equals pneumonia, right? And if aspiration equals pneumonia, then if we stop the aspiration, theoretically, the risk for pneumonia ceases to exist. It becomes a simple formula in our heads. But on the other side of this equation, exists the possibility that we do everything we can to manage the risk of aspiration and the patient still gets pneumonia. And this has sort of led us to blame ourselves for other medical professionals to point to us when the pneumonia occurs. And this ultimately leads to an attempt to stop aspiration at all costs, which in turn gives us this tunnel vision that we talked about where we're just focusing on dysphagia. And, and this really has put our reputational, you know, our professional reputation um, at risk here because several articles have come out in the last few years that are recognizing this, this practice pattern that we've developed. For example, in 2008, there's an article titled Oral Pharyngeal Dysphagia in Long-Term Care, Misperceptions of Treatment Efficacy. In the Washington Post in 2018, they, pub they published an article titled Problem swallowing are a big killer, but the treatment can be horrible. And in 2019, there's an article titled Things We Do for No Reason, The Use of Thickened Liquids. So kind of like you said, Teresa, we can poke holes all we want in these views and we can sort of take a stance against them and uh, or make believe they don't exist, but they do exist. And unfortunately, they're making us look like we don't know what we're doing, which is not ideal. It's discouraging for our patients, for ourselves, for the field as a whole. But instead of pointing fingers or just kind of throwing our hands up, I think that it's time that we do a little bit of self-reflection to try and understand this issue a little bit more and, you know, to see if there's anything that we can do to, to change the path that we've set ourselves on here. Yeah, yeah, I think... I, I think kind of the best analogy that I can use to kind of describe what's going on here is almost like a, you know, you, we have like medical doctors and then we have like, and I don't even want to say, you know, like naturopathic doctors, you know, and we have, they can be super, super polarizing. They can be doctors that only prescribe medications and there can be naturopaths you know, that only prescribe lettuce. I'm, I'm obviously being very, you know, exaggerating here, <laughs> yeah. but I, but I, the, the issue, you know, it's, it's so fascinating to me when you find somebody who is very neutral and who does understand the power of, of traditional medicine and pharmaceuticals, but also 
you know, changing, making dietary needs and you know, eating more greens and things like that. And I think of that in this scenario. And, and I think of it specifically with my son too. Like he does do much better on slightly thick liquids. And I'm so glad that, you know, Izzy has created this slightly thick thing because nectar was too thick for him, but slightly thick is much better. On the flip side, he is a functional aspirator. We've seen we've seen aspiration on on fees. We've seen aspiration on fluoro. He's never had pneumonia. So you know, if some SLP told me that my kid needed to be you know have his whole diet flipped upside down, you know, be on puree, be on super thick stuff, you know, even NPO, like I would lose my dang mind, you know, because he he is a kid that is generally very healthy and has never had any of these things. But on the other hand, a little bit of thickness does very much help his anatomy. So I think, or, or physiology, I should say. So uh, there's very much this, I think, educated, happy medium that we all need to find and to understand that these polarizing views and and one-sided views do nothing for the patients. You know, I, I really, I'm not a fan of the people that say, you know, thick and liquid should be banned, you know, puree diet should be banned. But then I'm also, you know, not a fan of the people that say, you know, everybody gets pneumonia. You know, I just think we have to be educated in all of these and really look at the patient as a whole, like you said, you know, going back to the, the first things that you were saying about really looking at all of the pieces of the patient. Yes, definitely. And that's, um, I mean, that was very well put. And that's actually sort of the direction that I'm going with this because we by no means want, you know, we're kind of focusing on thickened liquids and modifying diets here because it is and it has become sort of a main focus of our field. It's become the, the number one thing that we do in terms of recommendations. And it's kind of where our heads go first, which you know, shouldn't be the case. We like you said, we should be looking at the patient as a whole and we should be determining what's best for this specific patient that's in front of us. And thickened liquids can be good. They can also be bad. There, there's a lot of research to suggest that the things that we think um, thickened liquids and modified diets are doing are not necessarily doing. There's a, a number of studies that show that recurrent aspirations, a recurrent aspiration. So, so I have an example here, actually. Zeltzer et al. in 2020. Small amounts of thickened water aspirated versus um, thin water resulted in much more pulmonary inflammation. And then Robbins et al. in 2008 showed basically no difference in pneumonia rates with patients who took thin, say with a chin tuck, um, versus those who just took thickened liquids. And more of those patients on thickened liquids also had dehydration, UTIs, fever, et cetera. And then there's a, a big famous study in 2017, Kenioka et al., concluded that there was no significant difference in the risk of pneumonia um, in aspirating patients who took thin liquids with safety management strategies, such as a chin tuck or free water, and compared those with thickened liquids. So yes, if we're looking at this research alone, you might think, you know, I'm never going to recommend thickened liquids for my patient ever again. This makes no sense. But it, it, that's not the case. First of all, research is not perfect. Uh, these studies that I brought up in particular, um, are only used patients with basically a low risk of pneumonia. And they don't necessarily address patients who are poor candidates for those management strategies that they discussed, like a confused or impulsive patient might not be able to do free water or use a chin tuck every time. But I 
do still think it's worth knowing that thickened liquids are not the only option here. And they're often not the best option for our patients. And we're, again, we're using thickened liquids as an example here. But the big question that we're trying to answer is, is it the aspiration that we should be solely focusing on? How, how can we be managing our patients with dysphagia more effectively? So, so, I mean, Teresa, have you ever had a patient who follows all your recommendations and still gets pneumonia? Yep. It happens, right? Yep. It happens to the best And then of you're us. like, oh my God, I'm the worst SLP ever. I <laughs> exactly. need to just give up my C's. Yep. Yep. Here's my C's. I'm handing them over. I'm done. But then there's the patient with gross aspiration who does whatever he wants and ignores everything you tell him and his lungs still stay clean as a whistle. And that, that is because the role aspiration plays in whether or not somebody gets pneumonia depends on many factors. It's not just one thing. And so the risk will be different for every single person. Even It can even be different for the same person at different times during their length of stay. So what's the solution? You know, we have to look at the whole picture here. And a simplified version of the whole picture is basically that aspiration pneumonia results from the combination of three main factors. The volume and frequency of the aspiration, and this is both antegrade and retrograde, antegrade meaning swallowing related, retrograde meaning reflux or emesis related. The microbiology of the aspirate, uh, meaning what is the patient aspirating? Is it potentially harmful pathogens or is it just clean water? And then the patient's response. Uh, are they able to cough it out? Are they able to clear it through mucociliary clearance? Um, is their immune response strong enough that they're able to fight it off? And this, this concept uh, is not really news. You know, Dr. Langmore's risk factors for aspiration pneumonia, which, which originally questioned how important dysphagia is, came out in 1998. And I mean, that was a long time ago, right? As a field, we're, we're obsessed with this paper too, myself included. And yet, how much has it actually changed the way we practice on a day-to-day -day basis? And there have been lots of papers since that have identified patient variables that are associated with increased likelihood of pneumonia, which often include dysphagia, but only as a partial contributor. And I think the reason why we don't put this information into practice is that it's really complicated. You know, it's, it's one thing to know that COPD or poor oral hygiene and aspiration all increase the likelihood of pneumonia, but what if your patient only has one of those factors? What if your patient has all of them and several more? How will this change the risk profile? How will it change our plan of care? How do we manage all of these different factors? And how does reducing the risk of aspiration, say with thickened liquids, for example, change this risk? So we need a new method here, right? What we think we need uh, is a statistical approach that's actually already widely used in medicine. And, and Doreen's going to talk to you about um, all of the principles of that. But what we're trying to do basically is combine all of the relevant risk factors for pneumonia so we can predict the overall likelihood or probability that a patient will get pneumonia based on their individual presentation. And next, we need to go even further. We have to rank these individual factors and in their likeliness of causing pneumonia based on the current research. For example, will poor mobility have more or less of an effect than poor oral hygiene? And we'll let research answer this for us. But this way, we can target 
the risk factors that are most likely to cause pneumonia and also see which ones that we can alter, which ones we can't, and which ones the patient doesn't have any interest in altering. And what we'll have at the end of this is, is basically the calculation of a simple number. And this would be a probability that you can present to the patient. For example, you have a 75% chance of getting pneumonia based on um, our calculations. And then we can provide them ways to reduce that probability through recommendations that are based on the evidence, uh, based on our clinical expertise, and of course, based on the patient's preferences. And so hopefully what we end up with is a more holistic approach than what we've been doing, where we're looking at the whole clinical picture. We're not just focusing on one small piece of the puzzle. And we think that this will, this will basically help us understand our patients better. It will help us you know, get on board with other medical professionals um, that are doing these same, these same kinds of things. And they'll understand that we're, we're you know, looking at a bigger picture here. And, but most importantly, it's going to help us get on board with the patient because that's the most important thing. And, and we do really need to be treating the patient, uh, you know, the whole patient, not just the dysphagia. And that's, um, that's my cue for Doreen. If you, if you want to um, introduce, I left the hard stuff for Doreen, basically. She's, she's <laughs> going to talk about the statistics part. Um, yeah, so thanks, George. So <laughs> what we need, right, is, is a way to be more objective, to you know, not let our emotions and our biases about aspiration kind of make aspiration play a bigger role than it, than the evidence really supports. So, you know, when you, when you go to the doctor and he's going to analyze your risk of developing heart disease, he's not just going to look at one factor and be like, oh yeah, quadruple bypass for you. You know, he's not going to be like, you're obese, quadruple bypass. He has to look at all of the risk factors and, and make a prediction based on that information. He needs to synthesize that information so that he can talk to you about, here are some things that you could do to reduce your risk. And then you can say, okay, yeah, I could do that. Or, you know, how much does that reduce my risk? So then you can decide, is it worth going on a, a vegan diet or, you know, having some kind of procedure or having some kind of invasive testing? So that's really what we're talking about here. And it's been used in medicine you know, since about the 1980s, it's pretty much the standard for those kinds of clinical encounters. So we're looking for a way that we can combine all of the risk factors uh, so that we can predict overall likelihood. But also we need to understand what is the individual impact of each uh, risk factor. So uh, what George and I have been doing is looking at um, a methodology for, for doing that in, in dysphagia management. Uh, so the tool that we're talking about is called Bayes' theorem. So that is what the doctor uses to assess your risk of heart disease and, and make recommendations about how you should proceed. And it's really just a, a mathematical formula that lets you predict the probability of an outcome based on multiple variables. Uh, it's based on, um, so here's where it's going to get a little bit mathy. And I know that not everyone has the math background that they wish they had. Um, you know, maybe for some of us, when you hear that we're going to use math, your response ranges from, you know, a little bit of a hmm or to like absolute terror. But it's it's complicated in the way that our job is complicated. But the math is not complicated. The math is really nothing more than multiplication. 
So um, it starts off with the primary probability, the prevalence. So prevalence, you know, everybody knows what prevalence is. It's when it's how many people in the population have the outcome you're looking for. In our case, pneumonia, uh, divided by the total number of people in the population. So you can take the, the prevalence data, that's your starting point, and then you adjust that number up or down based on your individual patient's risk factors. So that's how you arrive at the end probability. So the prevalence is gonna be different based on the population and the outcome you're looking at. So George was saying, you know, there's this difficulty in differentially diagnosing the different kinds of, of pneumonia. So in order to apply this tool, you're gonna to have to have a, a good understanding of what outcome you're most concerned about or what outcome you wanna look for and also the population that you most often work with. Is it hospitalized adults? Is it patients in the nursing home? Is it patients in the community? Uh, that will vary the, the prevalence. And then the, the tool that, the statistical analysis that we use to determine the impact of each individual risk factor is called likelihood ratios. And George is holding me back. I'm not gonna go into the heavy statistics on, um, how these are calculated, but they do, this is what tells you the individual weight of each factor. So which one is more likely to give you pneumonia? Which one has more of an effect? Is it COPD? Is it aspiration? Is it your mobility? So this tells you the individual weight of each factor. And then once you combine the prevalence and the all of the variables that you know about, then you can say to your patient, okay, you know, patients who have a similar presentation to you, about 70% of them end up with pneumonia. But if we can do this, this, and this, then the likelihood that you develop pneumonia will go down to 40 or 30. So to give you some examples of the, of the likelihood ratios, we, we haven't done a systematic review, so we don't have comprehensive data yet. But what we've had so far um, is that mobility, functional dependence, and um, pulmonary clearance factors tend to play a much bigger role than factors related to dysphagia, aspiration, pharyngeal residue, those kinds of things. So those numbers are all relative depending on how you combine things. So it's going to, you have, it's very individualized. It's an it's a way of looking at it. It's a way of taking the evidence that's based on a large sample and applying it to your individual patient so that you can have the most um, accurate interpretation of, of what their uh, function will be. So it seems like it would be a lot of work, but I think the benefits would really outweigh the, the extra effort or, or the, the difficulty. So this would, you can see how this would facilitate shared decision-making, right? We, when we go to a patient, we say, oh, well, you know, really think you should do this thing that I want you to do because you're, you have an increased risk of developing pneumonia. You know, you're aspirating. The patient's like, oh, I'm aspirating. You know, that sounds bad. How bad is it? And we're like, well, it's kind of bad, you know, but this way we can say, well, it's, it increases your likelihood of developing pneumonia by 15% or, or 20%. We can actually say, and they could say, oh, okay, maybe it is worthwhile for me to 
do these things that you're telling me. Maybe it is worthwhile for me to stay away from thin liquids while we try to fix this problem. So that kind of uh, shared decision-making, it studies show that it increases patient satisfaction, it increases adherence, and it increases outcomes. When the patient can really feel like they understand the risks, they understand why the treatments are being prescribed, and they're, they're much more likely to take an active role in their, in their rehabilitation. And it also will facilitate conversations with the care team, right? So we're seeing that mobility plays a significant role in whether or not a person is going to develop pneumonia. So if we go and say, gee, I'd really like him to be out of bed, and they could be like, oh, no, 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 because he's going to get skin breakdown or he's going to fall or he just doesn't want to. And we could say those are all valid and legit concerns. However, if we can get him out of bed, say, from before lunch until bedtime, that's going to reduce his probability of getting pneumonia by 30 percent. And so we're not saying you have to do that. But here's some information that is going to help the nurses or the PTs or the physician make a decision for that patient's best outcome. I think what you said was very powerful about what this can do inside facilities even. You know, I think a lot of times, how do we, you know, we get we get angry, you know, that the CNA doesn't want to get this person up or, you know, there, there's a million things that, that we get angry at that they, they say they don't want to do. But I think, you know, what you said was very powerful. It's got to be about why. You know, and and I don't know if sometimes they think we just say, you know, please get them out of bed, you know, because we feel like it because you're bored and you don't have anything else to do. Um, but I think when you're able to actually quantify it and explain that there's actually a very significant means to end ends here, you know, I, I think it puts things into perspective a lot better. And I think, you know, I, I could even envision this being something that's shared like in morning rounds you know, this person's at a much higher risk, this person's at a much lower risk, you know, if this person's asking for a cup of water, is it the end of the world, you know, like, (laughs) so I think there's a lot of ways that this, that the quantification of this can be very valuable. Yeah, so um, a case study, let's take the example, this is where I work, this is it, this is my bread and butter right here. So a patient from the nursing home who is on a regular diet, is ambulating with a walker, has a fall, and she ends up at the at the hospital. Um, she's kind of obtunded. She, turns out she has a UTI. Uh, so now she's referred to me because she is coughing with her meds. So I do my assessment. I do my instrumental workup. It turns out she is aspirating on thin liquids. And some of the other factors that are relevant here, she does have a Um, an infection, a bacterial infection already in the UTI. Her pulmonary function is okay. Um, Her mouth is clean, but she is really out of it. She is bed bound and she needs to be fed right now. Uh, So when we kind of compare those factors to each other, her aspiration increases her probability by, so this is kind of converting those likelihood ratios just into probability using a study by McGee which is in the references. Uh, so he, if it increases her probability, the aspiration of thin liquids increases her probability from that base rate, which in my facility is about 9%. It increases it by about 15%. So that increases her probability by some. But when we think about the fact that she needs to be fed, according to the Langmore study, that increases her probability by about 35%. 
being dependent for feeding. Being uh, bedbound increases her probability by about 40%. And that has to do with just pulmonary clearance. When you're less mobile, you're less able to move things up and out of the lungs by, by mechanical uh, transport, that mucociliary transport. So if we were to try to eliminate this patient's risk of aspirating on thin liquids by eliminating her access to thin liquids, that would reduce her probability. But the other thing that we noticed during the imaging is if when we put her on thickened liquids, she has a lot more pharyngeal residue. And according to the Langmore study, pharyngeal residue increases your probability of developing pneumonia even more than aspirating liquids. If the liquids hang around in your throat significantly, she doesn't really quantify it as precisely as we might like nowadays because the study was done a long time ago, um, but she says significant residue. That correlated with, uh, so aspiration was a 15% increase, residue was a 20% increase. So we don't want to do that. That's not going to reduce her probability of pneumonia. So we're left with modifiable risk factors of her being dependent for feeding and her reduced mobility. So let's say that based on all of this patient's risk factors, her dysphagia factors, her functional dependence, her pulmonary factors, which she's doing pretty well at baseline, except for the mobility, uh, and then kind of her just comorbidities and stuff, which we would also take into account. Her probability of developing pneumonia is uh, pretty high. It's about 92%. If we can change these functional dependence aspects, we can, you know, we can't probably can't get her to feed herself because she's pretty obtunded, but maybe nursing can go in there and scoop some up on the spoon and hand over hand, bring it to her mouth. And then the next two bites, she kind of brings to her mouth by herself. Just if we can change it from totally dependent to doing a little bit herself, that's going to change her increase from 25% to only about 15%. So that is going to reduce her overall probability. If we can also get this patient up and out of bed for a little bit more than half the day, that is going to significantly reduce the probability. So going from that high probability of being bed bound to being up more than half the day, that really doesn't increase her probability at all. So we can, with those two factors, just having nursing help her with eating and her participate a little bit more and being up out of bed, we can reduce her probability from 92% to 60%. Uh, so that's, you know, our numbers, this is only going to be as good as the evidence that we put into this formula that we're using to do these calculations. So I don't feel like our likelihood ratios are, are as great as the they're going to be once we look into this a little bit more. Um, but that just gives you a, a general sense of, of how this tool can be used. So we can go to nursing and say, you know, I really feel like if she could just participate a little bit, I know it's going to take you longer. I know that you feel like she's not going to eat as much or, but I'm telling you, this is going to really help her. It's going to reduce her probability by 20% or I can't remember, <laughs> but um, so, and then also, you know, get to PT, talk to the CNAs and say, yes, there is this risk of her getting up and falling. There is a risk of skin breakdown, but it also has this benefit. So we can really have conversations with the care team. I love it. Do you guys have, have it delineated what all of the risk factors are? Yeah. So like I said, we haven't 
um, done all the research on this. We, 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 we plan to, but what we did was we did like a little, let's see how this is going to work kind of a thing. Um, and we, we did a PubMed search. Uh, we have seven articles and we chose articles that have, that had the raw data we needed to calculate the likelihood ratios and that had variables that an SLP would have access to during the course of a consultation. So not like, you know, bronchial lavage or anything like that, just things that we could get from the chart and, and from our assessment. Uh, and then we calculated, we have 45 variables right now that we calculated likelihood ratios for. Um, and then we made up a little, <laughs> just, just to make it, just to see how it would go, because what you have to do is you take the base rate and then you have to multiply it by each one of those variables. So if there's 45 variables, that's a lot of multiplying. But we did an electronic form where you could just enter the information and then the calculations are done automatically just just to see how how it would work, just to see what that I looks envision like. even something like an Excel spreadsheet. That's what or we did. We did like a, an app. A yeah. Google form yeah. and then the form populates right into yep. the Google Sheet. And then you get them. I'm glad we're also smart and on the same page. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And to clarify, you know, Doreen is being modest here. You know, she, we've both been looking into this for, we've both been researching for about three years, right? And I know you've been doing this for even longer. I've been thinking about pneumonia uh, for a really long time. Yes. Well, thank you, Doreen. <laughs> And the other thing I want to clarify is that the it sounds really complicated, um, and the calculation aspect is, but with the technology that we have right now, where you can put all these things in a spreadsheet, Doreen, you calculated exactly how long it takes start to finish to do this calculation, yeah, right? Yeah, it takes, like, you know, I've done it a bunch of times now, um, so it takes me, like, a minute or two minutes, um, but... It really probably will take about five minutes. It's really like filling out a form on Google Forms. It says, you know, does your patient aspirate, you know, on thin liquids? It's not hard. That's not terrible at all. I mean, yeah, I was thinking even something like you think of these standardized tests that we administer, you know, some even take like up to an hour. Right. You know? You're looking at graphs and forms and everything. Yeah. yeah this yeah, is just, yeah. Um, you know, but but if anyone's interested I would be happy to send you the link to the Google form and the spreadsheet, but I just want to caution, you know, I, I feel like anything we could do to be more objective is going to be better than what we're doing right now. But, but I'm not, I don't want to suggest that this is all you need. You don't need any more information to be objective and make a comprehensive assessment of your patient's risk for pneumonia, because there are, there are variables that I, I was hoping to find that we didn't find in our initial search. And I hope that as we continue to research it, we'll find it. So, and we haven't done any methodological analysis of the studies that we included for just our, our kind of, is this going to work kind of, kind of a search? Is this something that could happen? Right. So um, what we'd like to do, uh, and, you know, George and I are full-time clinicians, right? George also has a business. Um, so we're trying to research this. What, what needs to happen is a systematic review, right, where we say we are going to make sure we're going to comb the literature and find every relevant variable. And then what we're going to do is, is a meta-analysis on all of these variables so that if there are multiple studies that are looking at the same exact variable, how do we pick which one to use? Is there a way to combine them so we get a bigger N and a more accurate rating of the variable? But that's going to take a long time. <laughs> um, so Ed, anyone who wants to help us, please, a lot of people. <laughs> please contact us. We want all the help <laughs> we can get. So right now uh, we're in the process of 
um, developing a protocol for our systematic review. And George makes it sound like I know more about statistics than I do. So <laughs> anyone who knows more about <laughs> statistics, please, please help me. I'm, I'm trying to figure this out as I go. Um, I'm just a person who likes math, <laughs> not a statistical expert. So, but I do think that this is urgent. Um, we really need to figure this out uh, so that we can make more accurate decisions for our patients. Yeah. You know, I think, it, you know, in, in full disclosure, when, you know, you guys approached me about wanting to talk about this, I was like, well, like, no, because... <laughs> you know, we don't have like the <laughs> solid research, you know, we don't, we don't have all the pieces, you know, to put this out there. And I know the researchers are going to be like, this is, you know, whatever. Right. However, I stopped and took a step back and gathered my conscience and we are clinicians, right? We are clinicians that are doing the very best that we can with the patients that we have in front of us. And the variables that we have in front of us. And there's a lot of researchers that listen to this podcast. So if there's any of you out there that are like, oh, I know how to help them, please reach out and help. Because right. I think this is, I think this is a fantastic, fantastic please. tool. And once I was diving more into it, I was like, this makes so much sense. So I know if people out there are like, where's the hard data? We don't have the hard data right. people. However, if you would like to help, please come help. So <laughs> we want we want to get <laughs> the hard my, data. Yeah. Uh, if we're yeah, making yeah. any mistakes, it's just out of inexperience, uh, not because we're taking shortcuts or anything. We we want to get this right, but we're making these decisions already. I mean, this is already being done. Uh, yep, yep, yep. So, mm -hmm. and we are we are seeking advice and feedback from researchers in the field. You know, we. I've spoken to Dr. James Coyle about this. I've, I've spoken to Dr. Susan Langmore about this. Um, and basically the consensus is that it's going to be tough. It's going to be hard. It's going to be a lot of work, but, but nobody has said it's impossible. And without that, I think Doreen and I are yeah, on a mission awesome. to get this thing I love done. It. <laughs> I am such a long-term big vision thinker. So I, I have a lot of respect and admiration for that, you guys, because, you know, Rome wasn't built in a day and, you know, I think a lot of people want to just have these quick fixes and that's not the reality of how these big undertakings happen. Right. So. Right. And I, I think that kind of quick fix is what, what the position we're in right now, you know, one size does not fit all. Thick and liquids does not solve all problems. Yep. Awesome. Well, this has been wonderful. You guys, I, this is awesome. I, I, I've, like I said, I have tons of respect for you guys and the work you've put into this and, I think there's nothing better that we can offer our patients than a holistic approach and looking at all of their factors. And, you know, I, I, I will die on the evidence-based practice hill. You know, I, I think we have to consider all, all the factors of the research of our experience of what the patient wants. And I think this is a beautiful way to present to them what possibly could be happening and allow them and their families to make the best decisions for themselves. So I think this is awesome. So thank you guys so much for sharing this. Yeah, thank you. I hope that we get some feedback and, and very curious to hear yeah. what people think about it. Um, but yes, thank you so much, Teresa. Honestly, um, this, you know, we've presented this a couple of times now, but this is by far Absolutely. the largest platform that we've had. And we are so grateful for you for uh, rolling the dice on us. And <laughs> hopefully you won't get <laughs> too much hate mail from the researchers yeah. out there. But 
So yeah, this has been yeah, yeah, really awesome. a great experience. Thank you so, so much. Thank you. Thank yeah. you. And I think this is kind of the perfect example of how things happen, you know, how, how things in the real world happen. You know, it's, you guys have an idea, we're tossing it out there, looking for people to kind of join in and help. And, you know, it's, it's just, it's the reality of how things happen. And sometimes there's not a clear cut answer right in front of us. So Yes, yes. And when we're not going to do it unless it, it, it makes sense from a research right, standpoint, right. and unless the researchers tell yeah. us that this is something we can do, we're not just going to do it. You know, we're not going to be. It's an idea right now. It's not a, a tool. Yes. Yet. Yes. Yeah. All right, you guys. Well, thank you so, so much. This has been wonderful. Thank you. Thank you, Teresa. Bye bye. Bye. To download the show notes from this episode, please visit swallowyourpridepodcast.com. There you can also sign up for our email so that you'll never miss another episode. If you like what you hear, then please subscribe, leave a review on iTunes, and share it on social media with your friends and colleagues, because that is what keeps these episodes coming. If you'd like to be a guest, share feedback, or request a topic to be discussed on the show, please email podcast at teresarichard.com. Special credit to Danny V. Socrates for her amazing audio and editing skills and to Marissa Hendrickson for managing all the things behind the scenes. As always, thanks so much for listening and see you next week.